HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest today is Ben Felder. Ben covers agribusiness and the meat industry, two of my favorite topics, in Oklahoma, a state I haven't really explored in any great depth, for Investigate Midwest. And I will take a moment here to give a a quick plug to Investigate Midwest. Honestly, people, this is worth subscribing to. It's free. The journalism is excellent, and you're going to read some stuff that you aren't going to see anywhere else. Anyway, end of of commercial. Uh, Ben previously worked for The Oklahoman as a political enterprise reporter, blending narrative storytelling, data analysis, and investigative reporting to cover the state's political leaders, the influences behind them, and their impact on everyday Oklahomans. That is so rare that people do that. Originally from Kansas City, Missouri, and a graduate of Tribeca University in Nashville, Felder lives in Oklahoma City with his wife, Lori, and his son, Satchel. I love that name. Um, Welcome, Ben. Thank you so, so much for joining me today, and I'm hoping this will be the beginning of a beautiful partnership. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) Anyway, the case that you describe in your, I think it was January 4th article in Investigate Midwest, it, I mean, you know, as I said to you before we started the show, I've been doing a lot of um, of uh, stories about water quality and water pollution emanating from uh, agrochem and from um, con- concentrated uh, animal feeding operations, otherwise known as CAFOs. Um, and so in Iowa, where this is just like a critical issue, like a, a giant uh, emergency, which the state legislature is not taking seriously as an emergency. Um, but your story read right out of like a page right out of their manual for how to pollute their your water. 
um, so I, let's start by um, telling us what, what, why did you uh, want to tell this story in particular? This story is about poultry companies and, and how they have uh, managed to um, elude uh, regulations over the last 20, 25 years, or rather a lawsuit in specifically. Yeah. So um, I, so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm new to the agriculture beat, and I think we'll probably get mm-hmm. into that here a little bit later. I, I joined the Investigate Midwest team uh, last summer. And so oh. um, being brand new to this beat, uh, of course, you start with like, well, what's the history of this beat? And mm-hmm. one of the uh, big issues in Oklahoma over the last couple of decades has been this lawsuit that was filed by the state, by the former Attorney General Drew Edmondson uh, in 2005 against several large poultry companies that were operating in the eastern part of the state, including Tyson Foods. And the state contended that the uh, that those operations, which were contracting with local farmers and were, uh, you know, utilizing, you know, these, these CAFOs, these large industrial farms, that the chicken litter waste was polluting the state's eastern waterways. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that was the crux of the lawsuit, which was filed in 2005. Why it's still relevant is because uh, the case is still ongoing. Unbelievable. Uh, the, the judge, uh, it was a federal lawsuit, so in federal court, the federal judge uh, ruled in favor of the state last year, last January. Um and which generated new headlines about the case. Um, but as a, as like I said, as a person who was new to this beat, I just felt like it was a natural place for me to start. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in Oklahoma 20 years ago, and that's probably true for many people here. There's a lot of new uh, new arrivals. But even those that were here, um, you know, they may not remember necessarily how this case got started. And so for me, I wanted to kind of, you know, it's an old cliche of knowing where you've been to know where you're going. And so I wanted to start with kind of researching, like, what was the foundation of this case? And that that took me to the, uh, to the state archives. I pulled all the, the the boxes of documents from the former attorney general's tenure that related to this case and just really wanted to better understand, um, you know, what was he after? Uh, what did those initial communications and negotiations with the poultry companies look like? Right. Um, and to see, like, how we got to where we where we are today. Right. Which is basically nowhere. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's still, as you said, the case is still ongoing. This has not yet been settled. Um, so when it started, what was Drew Edmondson, the attorney general at that state attorney general at that time? What was what was the catalyst for this? What was he seeing and what was what were his constituents perhaps um, telling him? Yeah, well, in 2005, I mean, the state had seen kind of a decade plus of just substantial growth in the poultry industry in mm-hmm. eastern Oklahoma, uh, which borders Arkansas. Many people obviously know that Arkansas is a big hub uh, yeah. for, for chicken. And I think in, in in Arkansas, especially western and northwest Arkansas, um, they're kind of running out of room for all these farms. I mean, northwest Arkansas around the Bentonville area is becoming very urbanized. And so, you know, they're looking for new areas and eastern Oklahoma um, just was a natural fit. And so I think as that growth had taken place, place, um, you know, people living in that side of the state, it's seen that their that their waterways were becoming polluted. And we'll get into some of the details I know on that. But I mean, you just have to look at the water and see how it's green, you yeah. know, when, yeah. when, you know, several years earlier, it, it wasn't. I mean, these were very pristine waters, very natural. I mean, eastern Oklahoma is a very beautiful, um, you know, part of the state. I mean, western Oklahoma has its 
is has its own unique beauty of being very flat and desolate and sunsets and all that. But eastern Oklahoma is very, you know, rolling hills and some mountains and very green. Really? Um, and yeah. so the water is very critical out there. The groundwater mm-hmm. is. And so I, I think, you know, obviously Edmondson was hearing um, these complaints, but this was also not too long after kind of the recent tobacco cases that saw several states win uh, large amounts of money from cigarette companies. And I think corporate mm-hmm. responsibility was kind of front of mind at the time. In fact, when you look through the documents, both the attorney general and the poultry companies were constantly referring to the, t- to the tobacco cases. Oh, um, interesting. You know, it's kind of a guide, but also kind of a warning of what, you know, what could happen. And so, mm-hmm. uh, Edmondson had, um, had been negotiating with the companies for a few years. Those negotiations broke down in 2005 and that's when he went forward with the lawsuit. A few years later, there was a trial and then there was just kind of a pause in the case for many years and until last year. That's when the judge ruled in favor of the state. Now, he ruled in favor of the state, but then his order was that the both sides need to come together and, and come up with some kind of agreement, um, probably something we'll talk about here a little bit later. But those negotiations mm-hmm. broke down um, with no agreement in place. And so, so now we're just kind of waiting for the judge to see if he actually will make an order um, against, the, uh, against the companies. So what's incredible to me is that in the course of the next, you know, the, since 2005, the poultry companies and the contractors who work with them <clears throat> have been polluting with impunity, um, with no regulation and no, uh, you know, no consequences. So, I mean, basically they've won <laughs> and Oklahoma has lost. So let's talk for a minute about the poultry industry in Oklahoma, because, I mean, yes, we know that um, Arkansas and uh, North Carolina, for example, are both big hubs for the poultry industry. Um, but what what's going on in Oklahoma? How many birds, how much litter are we talking about? Litter, by the way, people, for those of you who are not familiar with the terminology, um, poultry litter is basically poultry feces mixed with the uh, sawdust or shavings that are typically laid down in any one of these big grow houses, uh, which will house as many as, say, uh, 20,000 birds. I don't think I'm exaggerating there. Yeah, no, um, that's right. But, Ben, you can uh, you can correct me. So so what we want to know is um, how many companies are involved? I mean, it's you mentioned Tyson. I'm sure there are others. How many birds are we talking about? How many growers? And let's remember, yeah. for example, that uh, for just for a minute, um, you know, the growers are people who have essentially been bamboozled into uh, working for these companies. Uh, they're largely uh, required to take out enormous debt in order to build houses to spec um, to the specs that the companies uh, insist upon. Uh, those specu- specs, uh, those specs can be uh, changed at will. Uh, forcing growers to scramble. They often have to borrow way more money than they could possibly uh, pay it back uh, quickly. Um, so it's it's a system that really, really needs to be uh, overhauled and regulated in a serious way, which doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. But that's just the background of poultry. So Ben, tell us the answers to those questions. Growers, how much litter, waste we're talking about. Like, and what you know, what is that? You know, what is it yeah. all about there? Yeah. So in 2005, when that lawsuit was filed, I mean, the industry had already grown so much over the last decade. But since that lawsuit, we I mean, we've seen even more growth. And uh, sure. since 2013, um, I mean, the number of birds that are licensed to be raised at any given time, you know, has more than doubled it to 60 million, which means over the course of a year. I mean, that's over 200 million birds, um, chickens that are raised in Oklahoma. Tyson and Simmons Foods are the biggest players and there's some uh-huh. smaller ones. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, I mean, the industry has really grown as Arkansas has kind of become 
uh, you know, too full for some of these operations. Um, sure. You know, in 2013, you were looking at about 140,000 tons of litter a year. And wow. the reporting from the state has not really been uh, has not really kept up. So but we know that, you know, the number of birds has doubled since 13. So you can safely, you know, know that there's been a kind of a double in that figure. Um, wow. You know, when Edmondson was trying to negotiate with Tyson and the companies, um, Tyson offered a a cap on litter. For so, let me back up and say, you know, the litter that these that these farms produce um, are are used as fertilizer. So they're often sold as fertilizer to area crop farms, or right. they're increasingly trucked out of state. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But mm-hmm. um, you know, Tyson in 2005 had offered to cap the litter fertilizer application at about 120 pounds of phosphorus per acre. Jesus. Um, but the, that's a standard about twice the, as high as what the state was seeking, about 65 pounds per acre. And what, yeah. um, you know, what the scientific community, including those scientists that were um, presented at the trial in this case, which happened in 2009, were saying, you know, 65 pounds of phosphorus per acre is, is, is plenty to fertilize crops Absolutely. without pollute, without polluting, polluting the waters. Um, and I think another thing that's important to mention about the growth of the poultry industry here in Oklahoma, and this is um, a, a story I wrote about, or, or I wrote about this in a story several months ago, um, is that the industrial poultry farms really accelerated when the state changed its CAFO licensing standards. So mm-hmm. in, in 2012, Oklahoma had 626 licensed CAFOs. It was the 10th highest number of any state in the nation, mm-hmm. according to the Environmental Protection Agency and the EPA was the federal agency that monitored those CAFO permits under the Clean Water Act. But it allowed states to take on that authority itself if they requested. And, um, and some states had already, and the governor of Oklahoma did just that in 2012. Mm-hmm. So one year later, after Oklahoma took over the CAFO registration process, Oklahoma reported a 91% decline in the number of these CAFOs, these factory farms. Now, of course, Ninety-one percent of these farms didn't close. Right. Most of them were able to register under a different umbrella, which is called a, in Oklahoma a poultry feeding operation. So when you have one of these farms, poultry farms, you could register as a CAFO, but now you were given the opportunity to register as just a PFO. Which the distinction there is that the PFOs allow you to open up much closer to homes and businesses. You don't need to notify neighbors oh. of the pending construction like you with, with a CAFO. Whoa, there just speaking. isn't a lot of time to um, to protest. Um, and in that story, I mean, one of the, the things that I kind of highlighted were the people that are living um, in these communities where these CAFOs just appeared. And, um, well, I mean, they weren't registered as CAFOs, but they were essentially CAFOs. And so um, right. had, they, had they gone through that old uh, permitting process, they would have had to send out letters uh, or notices to all the neighbors. They would have had a chance to kind of approach, you know, protest and appeal. And the setback requirements would have been greater. Of um, course. But with the PFOs, they could um, they could come in very quickly and open up a lot closer closer to homes. And so that's a, an important part of this too is that the registration process change, um, you know, really kind of opened the door for even continued growth and uninhibited growth too. Mm-hmm. And unregulated in any way. And let's remind people that what they do with poultry litter, I mean, this is one way that poultry farmers can make an extra buck, uh, given the margins being super tight, uh, working for as a contractor for a company like Tyson. But they sell the poultry litter, as Ben mentioned, as fertilizer. So, you know, that is just one revenue stream. I'm curious, Ben, I should have thought to ask you this. Um, I'm wondering if you have any data on what a poultry farmer can actually make from selling 
you know, his 140,000 tons of poultry litter or yeah, 280 a, now. Yeah. That yeah. That, that's a great question. And I don't have great rates um, or, or stats on the rates that they can make. But I will tell you that when even 20 years ago, when this lawsuit was being discussed, um, you know, one of the things that the poultry companies kind of publicized was like, listen, if they if they take away your litter, they're taking away a major source of income for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the focus from the companies was on this idea of like local family farms. Um, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But um, yeah, it is a revenue source. And you're right, the margins are very thin. And so, you know, any amount of money that you can make um, on top of the you know, the contract that you have with these companies um, is, you know, is really critical, really important. Yeah, oh, I would think so. I mean, that's probably the difference between your loan payment and not your loan payment, right? Yeah. I mean, it really could be right that that critical to them. You know, I, another uh, thought that just crossed my mind, and you'll see why I have to have, <laughs> I must have an outline because I do have ADHD. I've discovered as an older person, <laughs> I like, I cannot stay on one subject. But the other thing that popped into my mind was, uh, people may also not know that when a contractor uh, signs a contract with a poultry company like Tyson, um, they so they own the poultry litter. Okay, they do not own the birds. They do not own the feet. Like they don't do anything. They just provide these houses, and they make sure that the water, the water and the feed is dispensed as it's supposed to be, and the ventilation is correct, and the temperature. So that's what the grower does. But <clears throat> they also they know. So in the end, what they own is the poultry litter. And they own the dead birds. And this was a huge problem in Chesapeake Bay, which is also another big poultry area. And um, what made me think about this was avian flu, which I know swept through um, the heartland. And I'm assuming that Oklahoma took as much of a hit as many other egg or, uh, you know, chicken producing areas. Were you aware of that at all? Like, were the farmers like burying, you know, 200,000 chickens a season? Because yeah, I mean, it yeah. was literally they had to slaughter millions and millions of chickens, and we no, had we, two big avian flu outbreaks in the last yeah. five years. No, those outbreaks have touched Oklahoma. I think what makes it kind of hard is the lack of, of reporting requirements related to that, mm-hmm. um, or at least wow. that is that's easy to um, access. I will tell you. I mean, anecdotally, I mean, for this, you know, the reporting I did last year, you know, talking to a lot of people who live next to these farms. Um, of course, it's hard to get access to these farms. I mean, a lot of the farmers, understandably, oh, are like, sure. well, let me give you a tour of, of this industrial farm. I mean, probably would be against the rules of their contract anyways. Um, but those that are living next door, I mean, they can tell you about the patterns of when the feed comes, of, of you know, when the birds are shipped out and mm-hmm. when they see, you know, large, you know, essentially burn pits or um, when trucks come in to, um, to transport those dead birds off. And so, you know, no, it's definitely something that I've heard, heard many stories about. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and we have seen those flu outbreaks touch Oklahoma. Oh, sure. And if they're, I mean, whether they're burying the birds or burning the birds, that has, that has an impact on your environment as well. But anyway, that was just an aside. Um, let's go back to, so most um, concentrated area feeding operations, no matter what they are, you know, what protein they represent, have what's called a nutrient management plan. And I'm wondering, um, especially in light of what you just told us about the poultry feed operation, you know, the new sort of moniker for um, poultry CAFOs, do they, do they, have they elided the uh, requirement for a nutrient management plan um, by sort of redesignating their business? Well, they're still required to do a nutrient management plan. Um, and there isn't, from from what I can tell in reading over you know, what these nutrient management plan requirements are is they're really, they're, they're kind of specified to what the, 
you know, the farmer's situation. So mm-hmm. um, they have to spell sure. out in these plans, you know, what are they going to do with the litter essentially? Are they going to, you know, where are they going to sell it? Where are they going to, to truck it? Um, as I mentioned earlier, the states tried to impose um, some caps on, yeah. on how much uh, is allowed to be uh spread on a, on a specific field. Um, mm-hmm. I will say like, you know, the state rules say that the maximum plan rates of phosphorus application uh, shall be determined by what's called the Oklahoma phosphorus assessment worksheet. And so I kind of <laughs> wanted to look, look, I was kind of preparing for this interview and I looked that up and that scares and, me. <laughs> and, it, and it says that you're, you're not to exceed nitrogen needs of the crop. And what mm-hmm. kind of stuck out to me about that was um, you know, there's someone uh, who I was talking to about this who's much smarter than me on this stuff. And she said, you know, when you read that, that limit is based on the needs of the crop, not necessarily the needs of nearby water. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, these nutrient management plans, you know, are supposed to protect waterways and they do reference that. Um, but really, when it comes to putting down this fertilizer, the the plan is supposed to like, what's the need of the crop? How much does it need or what, you know, how much could it benefit from? And that's mm-hmm. kind of the focus. It's the, it's the crop, it's the grass. It's not so much the water. It's not, you're not necessarily taking readings from the water. Um, I mean, these plans do include information about like, you know, are, you know, does this property have like, you know, buffer strips between the property and the water. And so I don't want to say right. that these plans don't take that into it, into account. Um, and in, and there is some evidence that the Department of Ag here is is trying to beef up in, enforcement. I mean, the, the legislature did allocate some more money uh, a couple years ago to to hire you know more workers to review these plans. Um, I mean, critics will say that there's that the agency there's no way that it could keep up with all these plans. There's no way that it could you know triple check or double check all the the requirements that these plans spell out. Um, you know, some will say it's basically an honor system, but uh, but yeah, I think it's an interesting point that these nutrient management plans really focus on the kind of fertilizer for crops and not quite as much about what the um, the, the the danger is or what the needs are of the nearby waterways. Right, right. That's the amazing thing. Well, you know, I don't think anybody really thought those things through when they first started developing these nutrient management plans. I don't think that the Chris, the crisis in our waterways, you know, the Gulf zone, dead zone hadn't started yet, probably. I, I mean, I'm just speculating here, but um, I think it's, you know, sort of one of those things where it sort of crept up on people and they just didn't realize how very damaging this was going to be. I, I want you to just um, quickly, because we really haven't discussed what we are talking about, which is what has been the impact on the waterways. In other words, in the uh, in this eastern Oklahoma watershed, a specific river I know is involved, and then obviously all of its tributaries and everything. Tell us about what um, you know prompted Drew Edmondson essentially to really start this lawsuit. What specifically was happening to the water? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, I mean the, the first thing you could do is you could just see the water. I mean it was green, yeah. and um, and you talk to people who grew up um, in the area as one as one person said a couple of weeks ago. Um, he said, you know, you used to be able to stand in the water as a child and you could tell if you needed to clip your toenails or not, you know, even the water was like three or four feet deep and you could see, you know, that clearly. And now, wow. um, this build this buildup of algae has kind of turned the water green. What that does is it takes, it decreases oxygen levels. Um, it, uh, uh it, it, it makes it harder for, for, for fish. It makes it, uh, it increases costs for, uh, towns that rely on these waterways for their drinking right. water. They have to spend more when it comes to, uh, um, you know, cleaning up the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, so I think that, that green and that algae is kind of like the most apparent way that people can, you know, that people see it. Um, but you're also seeing just when you actually take a, you know, study these waterways, 
um, you know, there's a group uh, in eastern Oklahoma that's called the Spring Creek Coalition, and um, they, as the name suggests, are, are kind of an advocacy group for this waterway called Spring Creek, which is part of the waters that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and this 34-mile uh, long creek that flows through a few counties that have high concentrations of these industrial poultry farms. Um, And you just look at those, their reporting, I mean, the phosphorus, the nitrogen, the E. coli, um, all those levels are, you know, well exceed um, state and scientific standards. Um, You know, in a story I recently did looked at is, you know, some places that it's 36 times higher than the state standard. Um, I mean, so these these pollution levels are high, and, I, and maybe I'm answering your next question here a little bit. But you know, That's fine. proponents of the industry will often have often said in recent years that hey, the waterways are, are getting better. Pollution is pollution levels are decreasing. <laughs> That's tr- there's tr- there's truth to that. I mean, there are some things that you can look at. There are some waterways where you can see that pollution levels are decreasing. However, they still remain pretty high in, in many areas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a, a state water report last year that found you know, phosphorus rates, uh, the state standard is at 0.037 milligrams per liter. It's, you know, kind of, kind of wonky, but, um, you know, they found those, they found rates much higher than that. And, you know, in 13 spots across Oklahoma's Eastern waterways, um, you know, some, in some places, you know, that, that 0.037 was exceeded by, you know, rates of 1.153. I mean, you know, you know, many times higher, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially near some of the towns, like Tahlequah and Watts that really rely on these waterways. And so um, there are some, there is some evidence that the pollution levels are decreasing, but um, somebody said recently, uh, an environmentalist said, you know, it's kind of like saying someone with a fever of 105, a temperature of 105 is now at 103, like still alarming. Right, but, 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 you know, but still, but still alarming. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then that makes me having given all of the stories that I've done with Keith Schneider recently, who's been following the health impacts on populations of having these very high levels of nitrate, phosphorus and E. coli sort of coincidentally, I mean, not coincidentally, but ancillarily, um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious if, if rates of cancer or other uh, health impacts are, are starting to be observed because of this, you know, 20, 20 plus year increase in these rates um, on people's drinking water. But that's for another discussion. Um, we're going to take a short break now for a um, sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back with Ben Felder from Investigate Midwest. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, so Ben. Um, yes. Um, yes. Thank you. I like that. Um, so I'm going to assume that the water quality has gotten a little bit better. Um, the guy who I, I want to bring one thing up because this is something that happens with almost every uh, 
animal protein industry, in terms of people who are pushing back against that industry, there is a pattern of intimidation. And um, the attorney general who brought the suit, Drew Edmondson, endured a lot of pushback, both from the growers and from the integrator companies like Tyson, et cetera, um, along with the local Farm Bureau, which normally is hand in glove with uh, industrialized farming. Um, so what what were their tactics? Like what, because Edmondson eventually withdrew from negotiations because he could see that he wasn't getting anywhere because there was so much pushback. What what was happening to him? Yeah, there was a pretty heavy PR campaign from the Farm Bureau, um, which was funded by many of these poultry companies. Um, you know, they took out television ads and our, our television commercials and newspaper ads. And wow. really they kind of focused on the average farmer, you know, saying that Edmondson was going to kind of ruin their business and the economy mm-hmm. of, of rural Oklahoma. Um, right. And I think that's kind of an important issue. And I, I keep alluding to future answers, but I think we'll talk about that that's a little fine. bit. But just kind of this idea of the family farm versus industrial farm and, and why that distinction um, is not always um, evident to, uh, you know, citizens and lawmakers alike. Of course. Um, but, but what I found really interesting about, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, that's, that, that's the kind of PR campaign I think you'd run. You want to really focus on the local farmers. But what I found really interesting in looking through the documents of the initial negotiations was that those same companies were telling the attorney general, hey, this is not our problem. These are the farmers that are causing this pollution. You need to go go after them. You need to hold them accountable. Um, From day one, Edmondson said, listen, I'm not going to uh, this is not going to cost the the contract farmers. Um, I'm not going after them. Right. Um, that was probably the wise move, both from a policy perspective, but also a political perspective. Right. Um, but that's what I really found interesting is as, as while publicly the companies were saying, hey, Edmondson is attacking these local farmers. Um, Behind closed doors, they were saying, "Hey, it's really the local farmers you need to go after because right. you know they're the ones that are actually you know causing causing the, the pollution here." Right. Well, you know what's interesting is like back way back when um, I forget who it was exactly, but it was a community in um, Chesapeake Bay, and they sued Tyson because of the fouling of their local waterways. This is going back like 10, 12 years, and Tyson immediately threw it onto the poultry farmers. I mean, they and the poultry farmers, I mean, what are they supposed to do with that stuff? You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like, that's why I was point, bringing a point up of like, these guys, the contract growers are making almost no money. Uh, their money is very uneven because of the tournament system. And people can read Christopher Leonard's incredible book about the poultry industry, which I'm having trouble recalling the title right now. But Christopher Leonard, just look him up. He wrote a great book about it. He was interviewed on this show. You can look back in the archives. Anyway, they... Um, they're the, that's why I was making the point that these contract growers own the dead birds and they own the litter and they're supposed to manage this. And when you're talking about, you know, say you have an entire flock that gets a disease and you have 10,000 dead birds in your barn and you're supposed and you're just a guy mm-hmm. with a big old bank loan and you're supposed to manage this. Like that's what one of the things that to me is so fundamentally unfair and wrong about the contract growing system that you know, poultry companies have managed to build out over the last 30, 40 years, whatever it is, 40, 50 years. Anyway, let's move on because in the next, um, you did a follow-up piece uh, later in January, I think it was the 24th, and you described some recently introduced um, legislation that would further erode controls on the disposal of poultry waste. So let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so there's a, a bill that's in the legislature here in Oklahoma right now that was recently advanced by the House. So now it's being considered by the other side of the Senate. Um, House Bill 4118. And what it would do is it would um, it would 
it would basically protect poultry farmers and poultry companies from lawsuits as long as they have an approved nutrient management plan from the Department of Ag, the State Department of Ag. So we, we talked about the nutrient management plans that everyone's required to have that mm-hmm. says how they're going to dispose of their litter. Um, as long as they have a plan that's been approved by the Department of Ag, this bill, if passed, um, would prevent um, lawsuits from being brought against uh, you know farmers or the companies. Now, it's its motivation is is from that 2005 lawsuit. I mean, the author yeah, of this bill has said right. that. Yeah, in fact, the original language of the bill uh, tried to make it retroactive. Um, it was <laughs> it was later it was later taken out. I I don't think it would have pat, I don't think it would have held legal muster for a lot of reasons. One, it's a federal lawsuit we're talking about. But two, um, the state constitution of Oklahoma prevents the legislature from uh, passing laws to stop lawsuits that have already been brought. I, I, the, the writers of the constitution probably. You know, saw all these kind of tactics in the past, um, but it was it, this bill was advanced by the House, and like I said, so it's still got a little bit of ways to go. But um, I, I, I think to your to your average person, the it makes a little sense. It's it's like, hey, if you're following the rules, why should you? I mean, the state's the one that sets the rules. You should take that legal action, that lawsuit, to the state. That's what the bill's author would contend. Now, I will say two things about that. One is. There's actually language in the bill that says even if you violate your own nutrient management plan, you still would be protected. Um, wow. And two, that's not how we treat other industries. Uh, in that story, I was talking to um, a, a, the leader of a local environmental group that said, listen, we don't tell oil companies that if there's a spill that like, well, you had a plan for how to prevent the spill. So, you know, you don't face any repercussions of this. And so right. um, I think that's an interesting point, too, is that this is kind of giving some special treatment to a specific industry. Um, opponents of the bill brought that up and said, hey, wouldn't we be opening the door for other industries to say, hey, we want this kind of immunity, too? And the author said, sure. yeah, sure. I, I guess that would be I would that would be a natural response from other industries. But um, so, yeah, so that's that's a bill right now that um, that's before uh, the legislature. And um I mean, yeah, there's only there's no other way to look at it except that it, it is continuing to kind of deregulate the industry in a, in a way. Well, basically, it's the legislature giving industry a free pass. And given the uh, economic benefit to some people, I'm not sure who, um, because as we've seen over the past 50, 60 years, as, as you know, agriculture has industrialized, it has also kind of hollowed out rural communities for various reasons. You can read my book about the meat industry if you want to know more about that. Um, but in a, in, uh, I, I'm just curious, how, how do the local residents feel about this? Are they on the side of the growers where they make the argument that you just made, which is that if, the, if they're following the rules, then why should they be penalized? Or are they on the side of actually having potable water? Yeah, I think, you know, I've talked to many residents who live near these CAFOs, and obviously they have major issues with them. What's, but unless you live like right next to one, or unless you, you know, regularly utilize the water, or you have, a, you know, a creek that goes through your, your property that you've seen polluted, um, it's easy to kind of be kind of out of sight, out of mind with this. I think this kind of goes back to the idea of like industrial farming versus like the family farm. I mean, Oklahoma has a rich history in agriculture, like like many states. Um, yeah. And many people here have ties to a family farm. I mean, even if they live in the city, they still kind of feel connected to that heritage. Um, so I think when people hear about protecting farmers and protecting agriculture, um, it's easy to kind of get – you know, think, well, yeah, you know, we really, that's, that's a good move here in a, in a state like Oklahoma. 
Um, but I don't think that the distinction between an industrial factory farm and a family farm is is quite known to to a lot of people. And you know, for one of the stories I did last year, I was talking to a couple that lived you know across the street from one of these these industrial poultry farms, and you know, the man was a former farmer himself. He was an ag teacher at a local high school. I mean, so this is a guy that said like, listen, I'm a big supporter of ag. I mean, sure. I totally am. He said, but this is not a farm. Like this is a factory. Yeah. And, um, and that's, I mean, I think even for those of us who like live in the city, I think we can start to think of like, Hey, we, we like local business. We're okay with local businesses in our community, but there's a difference between maybe, you know, a small screen printing shop that's making t-shirts and a large, you know, you know, factory with smokestacks, um, and, and the pollution that comes with it across the street. And so I, I think that's, that's really where, um, the, the breakdown exists is, is, is what's the difference between, um, you know, that family farm and that industrial farm. And I, I don't know that that difference is always, um, I don't know that people are aware of that, especially if they don't live in these rural communities. Oh, I'm sure that's true. And also and also industrial ag goes to great lengths to uh, promote an image that they are what we all think of as the family farm, you know, some bucolic, you know, 150 acres with, you know, pigs and sheep prancing about in the spring and stuff like that. It's just, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think of Hillshire Farms, you know, a division of uh, Smithfield. I mean, like, you know, places like, you know, companies like that, and they they show these images that could not be further from the truth, you know. And people buy it because, well, what do they know? They're not farmers, right? They don't live in a rural community or they live in the suburbs or whatever. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to know what is true. And most people aren't paying that much attention because, well, they've got their own problems to worry about, right? So what do you think? Um, I'm just curious here because we, we have to wrap this up in a few minutes. But out of the, you know, uh, you know, to go to sort of further build on sort of community support for and against, um, what percentage of the state economy, in other words, how much money is this poultry uh, industry bringing into the state of Oklahoma? Because I'm, I'm looking for figures that will explain why so many of these elected officials have kept their, you know, have, have sort of promoted industrial ag over community water supplies. And, um, you know, for example, you made, you mentioned one attorney general who's taken over $40,000 in campaign contributions from the likes of Tyson et al. Like, you know, how much money is, I mean, I will ask the longest, stupidest, multi-pronged questions. I apologize. (laughs) Just cannot get over this. Um, But what what kind of talk, what, what kind of money are we talking about here? Yeah, well, quite Make a bit. I mean, like I said, yeah, there's, I mean, the states, you know, the states produce, are, you know, raising over 200 million birds a year that, that ranks 14th in the nation. And I think, um, but the way I think you have to look at it is like, you know, that's not statewide that we're really talking about Eastern Oklahoma. So, you yeah. know, think less about, you know, Oklahoma as a whole and more an area the size of New Jersey is where this is really concentrated. Wow. Um, and, you know, you referred to the, you know, former attorney generals who have received, uh, you know, uh, campaign funds from some of these poultry companies. Um, you know, when Tyson filed its motion to dismiss last year in the case, uh, they argued like, listen, this has been, this case has gone on for 20 years. That's ridiculous. It, it, it's too long. Um, they pointed to the fact that the state had seen, uh, 
several attorney generals since Edmondson left office and the current attorney general, and not one of them seemed to say, hey, we need to speed this case up or, or ask right. the judge to make a ruling to this. That's true, although it's a little disingenuous because a few of those attorney generals were there on an interim basis, um, some for just a couple of weeks. Um, the one that was there the longest, uh, Scott Pruitt, um, who later became the EPA director under Trump, right, uh, briefly. I was say. Uh, so, uh, understandably, he was against a lawsuit. I mean, understandably, and that's if you know his history. But um, you know, he was the one that was there the longest, and um, you know, and did say publicly, like, "Listen, this lawsuit is not something I support." Um, so his office wasn't putting any resources behind it. The current attorney general, uh, Gittner Drummond, um, who was uh, entered office last year, you know, he has seemed to take to still take on the case. I mean, he's asked the, the judge to rule. Um, you know, make several orders against the poultry companies in terms of what they have to do. But yes, there is there is a a, a political machine. I mean, I think you can you can look at campaign do- donations and such. We do have a few lawmakers from Eastern Oklahoma who have ties to those companies. They they mm-hmm. formerly worked there, or they have spouses that work there. But I think it goes back to that same concept with your average citizen not necessarily understanding the difference between industrial ag and the family farm. I think that exists in the legislature too. Um, I mean, Oklahoma is a very rural state, but a mm-hmm. lot of but we have. Most people live in the two major metro areas of Oklahoma City and Tulsa. So you have a lot of the Republican dominated legislature. You have a lot of Republican lawmakers who live in more suburban uh, communities and, again, probably have that tie to ag and and their history. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe still have a family farm, you know, that that they have control over. Um, I just don't know that they necessarily understand it as well. And that seemed evident to me during the recent floor debate in the House over this bill we talked about. There were a lot of people that said, like, listen, why are we not doing everything we can to support the family farmer? Um, When, again, that's not really what I think that bill was designed to protect because it wasn't the family farmer that was sued. It was the poultry companies. Right, right. Absolutely. But, you know, we like to conflate them. That is such an interesting point, Ben. I mean, you know, and I, and when I look at how legislation gets decided, even or even the farm bill, um, you know, it it does seem like that's a tremendous blind spot nationally uh, in terms of our elected representatives understanding or failing to understand what exactly is meant by uh, farming. Um, <laughs> you know, that the number of of quote unquote family farms has dwindled by some exponential figure in the last fifty sixty years. Um, and the number of industrialized farms has grown exponentially. And um, they're just not making, they're not able to make the distinction between the two or understand the impacts um, that this new-ish for, type of farming has on the environment and on communities um, versus that old style family farming, which is what we all like to think is where our food come from. But it does, comes from, but it doesn't. Our food does not come from family farms. Family farms can barely make it. You know, they're lucky if they have farmers markets nearby and CSAs and stuff like that. I mean, right? Do you yeah. guys, by the way, do you guys have a lot of CSAs and small, or are you mostly sort of industrialized farming now in, in Oklahoma? To your knowledge, well, I understand. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I live in Oklahoma City. There are a few farmers markets and growing. Um, uh, there's a couple uh, kind of grocery store co-ops that popped up. I mean, I think there is kind of a trend, as, as you're seeing across the country, of, you know, kind of people wanting to better understand where their food is coming from. Um, you know, but then at the same time, you see, you know, five new Chick-fil-A's pop up and <laughs> you know, the trend is going in the other, you know, the other direction. I mean, chicken, I mean, we're talking about an industry that just seen such growth because, I mean, primarily because the fast food industry has really pivoted to, um, to chicken uh, for, for many years. Um, 
But, sure. Uh, but well, yeah, American it's, it's consumers in general. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it used to be chicken was the luxury and beef was your everyday, right? Or pork, especially. Pork was your everyday. Beef and chicken were your luxuries and chicken especially. That's why chicken on Sundays, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think, I guess it was um, FDR who said two chickens in every pot or something like that. Yeah. You yeah. know, like, uh, let's let's grow this industry because cattle is more expensive to deal with. And uh, that's one of the reasons why chicken took off so uh, so incredibly. And the other is the genius behind Don Tyson, who started mm-hmm. the Tyson Company. And actually, before him was a guy named Jewel. Um, I forget his first name, but he he was the guy who really figured out the sort of vertically integrated piece of this puzzle. And that's what has allowed uh, the CAFO model to prevail in, in our country and, and around the world, because we have exported this method around the world. Um, and we will be reaping the <laughs> the rewards of that for many generations to come. Um, I guess we should leave it off here. I won't ask you about your crystal ball because we'll wait for your next uh, report from Oklahoma. I love this, Ben. I'm so happy to have a new voice from a new part of the country that I can talk to about, you know, some of the things that really beset this country and which don't get, you know, don't get a lot of attention elsewhere. So um, however big or small my audience may be, um, it's good to know that there are people like you out there who are writing these really excellent pieces and uh, trying to keep people accountable and keep people informed. So I appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. Happy to chat anytime. Do you want to do you want to promote yourself shamelessly now? Do you have a website? <laughs> do you have a Benfelder dot uh, com that people can go read your past work or just go to investigate Midwest or what? Yeah, no, you 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 did a great uh, plug for us. Investigate Midwest dot org. Um, uh, yeah, we uh, are. A, um, it's been a, it's a great team. I've I've really enjoyed my time here. Um, you know, very uh, you know investigative and data centric reporting, yeah. um, which I think is really was really needed. And um, you know, we're fortunate enough to um, also kind of rely on a lot of public you know publishing partners, uh, uh, the Oklahomans, some other major publications here in Oklahoma. Um, you know, have run a lot of my stuff, and so um, I'm just really grateful to be able to kind of get you know get those stories out there. But uh, but yeah, no, I'm I was excited to to join the show, and I'm happy to do so anytime in the future. As Thanks. Well. I I look forward to having you back we'll be in touch in a couple whenever you're ready with that next thing on groundwater i want to talk about that so yeah i'll let you know thank you so much for uh, joining me today thank you uh to my sponsors as always for supporting this radio station and thanks to my audience for tuning in see you next week folks thanks a million bye-bye What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.